Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Welcome to the fourth installment of Roland Garros Relived. And today we are going back to 1989 when Michael Chang became the youngest man in history to win a Grand Slam tournament. He was just 17 years and 95 days old. Catherine Whitaker, Matt Roberts and myself, David Law, are the tennis podcast team. We've been here the last three days reliving some of the best moments in tennis history, let alone uh, Roland Garros history. It's been a joy so far, and we've just had another enthralling few hours watching back the final that Chang played against Stefan Edberg, and also arguably an even bigger story, the fact that he beat the world number one Ivan Lendl a few rounds earlier. So much drama as part of that. We're going to tell the story by speaking to Michael Chang himself. He's going to be joining us here on the Tennis Podcast. We're also going to talk to Stefan Edberg, the man he beat in the final. Oh, Catherine, this is so good, isn't it? I'm loving this series. And um, yeah, he... He is just, he was an intoxicating presence, wasn't he? It's its one of those things when you watch him, when you think of him, I suppose you think of that match because that was the standout run of his life. He never won another Grand Slam title. But even knowing that, I think reliving it brings it home to you, just what a big deal it was. Yeah, I think if you polled tennis fans, even pretty knowledgeable ones, uh, and asked them, about the the Lendl Chang match, most would probably think that was the final. Most would probably think that he hit that underarm serve, the famous underarm serve, which we'll hear him talking about on match point, um, because that's the iconic match and and that's the iconic moment, and and that's even even with the fact that the final was pretty epic it, itself. You know, five setter against uh, Stefan Edberg, contrast of styles, it had everything, but it was still completely overshadowed by what was a fourth round match that had just about as much drama as you can possibly inject into a a sporting contest. 
Yeah, Matt, what was your your version of events before you knew we were covering this in detail? What what did you know about that year? Well, up until the French Open last year, I was definitely one of those people who thought that the underarm serve was on match point of the final against Lendl. I'll be honest, I genuinely thought that was the case. It's been mythicised so much and become such a legend. The only reason is that last year it was the 30th anniversary and we were all trying to get Kane Ishikori, uh, who's obviously coach now by Michael Chang, to hit the underarm serve and it became a bit of a story last year. Um, we all is me and you. Yes, oh yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> and, and failing as well. Um, <laughs> he did it in an exhibition, Matt. Yeah. At least you asked him about it in the press conference. That was a highlight <laughs> of last year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think... Whenever I've thought of Michael Chang, I've always thought of this tournament, obviously. Um, and in a way, that's in a way that's a little bit sad to think that he did have his absolute peak at seventeen. Um, and you know, in a way that some people talk about in golf, if someone's won the Masters, they can end up being a little bit kind of overappreciated maybe their story is bigger than their career i've i've kind of this is unfair and i probably probably owe him an apology not that i've ever said this out loud before but i've kind of always thought that michael chang was a bit like that because this moment is so well known he's become a perhaps bigger deal in tennis than the rest of his achievements would sort of attest to but Having watched it back, it is so exciting, so exhilarating. And he played a brand of tennis that I didn't quite realise he played. And obviously the Lendl match is, is iconic as well. So, um, yeah, really exciting to, to have rewatched it. Well, watched it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, having, having watched it at the time and, and followed his career throughout, he was a factor for a decade, but he never managed to quite scale the heights that he scaled on that on that fortnight um, in 1989, aged just 17. It, it really was incredible. Now, 1989 was also known for many other reasons, not all of them happy. And uh, as we've gone through the, this series, you realise just how much happens uh, in a year and, and down the years, and you can't re- believe that some of these things are that long ago. Um, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, and... Um, the Hillsborough disaster took place in 1989. Sky Television launched, hence why a year later I was able to watch tennis for the first time outside of Wimbledon because my dad, bless him, managed to get a satellite dish before any of my mates. So, uh, <laughs> so I was loving that. Uh, it, it did indirectly contribute to, well, actually directly contributed <laughs> towards me completely failing my exams because I was up all night watching tennis. But, you know, it worked out in the end, didn't it? Look, I'm, <laughs> I'm here. Uh, and Taylor Swift... Anthony Joshua and Daniel Radcliffe were born. And Catherine Whitaker was three years old by then. I can't believe I'm three years older than Taylor Swift. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's funny that funny those birthdays actually make it seem not that long ago in, yeah. a, in a weird way. I kind of think of Daniel Radcliffe I'm as o- I'm okay with being three, three years older than Harry Potter, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you're looking better on three years older than Taylor Swift. Don't worry about it. Um, That was quite a year, 1989, at the French Open generally, because a day before, 
Uh, Steffi Graf, who was the overwhelming favourite for the title, lost to Arantxa Sanchez, who was not really very well known at that point. It was a huge shock. I, remember, I didn't see the match. I remember seeing the headlines the next day and, and just this picture of Arantxa Sanchez in, in raptures, having, having won the title. And, and she would become a factor for another 10 years as well. And a career not unlike Chang's in many ways, in that she was always in the conversation. She got closer more often, I would say, than Chang. But really, it was one of those that she was always just behind. But they, they added so much that year. And they, they kind of mugged the top players in the world because they didn't know about them. And that's something that really comes across in these two matches. Let's, let's take them first of all, because Chang had got himself to the fourth round, having beaten back-to-back Pete Sampras, 6-1, 6-1, 6-1, who was also 17 years old at the time, and then Francisco Roig, uh, one of the coaches of, uh, of Rafael Nadal. Um, and he turns up against Lendl and goes two sets to love down. So you're facing Ivan Lendl, you're 6-4, 6-4 down, and you're 17, playing the world number one, who has won this title a couple of times. And the, the thought that Chang would win from there would seem ridiculous. We were two days, talking, uh, two days ago talking about how it was Lendl who was two sets down against John McEnroe and found a way back. And they really hit you hard, don't they, these stories, when you see them unfold. But I think there was more drama in the Chang fight back than pretty much any match I've seen in terms of just stuff that happened, stuff that he did in order to get over the line. He was moonballing his opponents because he started to cramp. There were there were several rallies where he just stood Chang way behind the baseline and challenged Lendl to hit winners. And it seemed to frazzle the mind of even Lendl. I, I, I'd never seen that before. He'd, he was a veteran by this stage. This was five years on from that match with with John McEnroe. He was no longer just on the brink of trying to become a Grand Slam champion. He was a seasoned, proven champion, overwhelming world number one. He'd won the Australian Open, and he couldn't really handle the games that Chang was playing with him. Yeah, you were kind of watching a robot uh, unravel, weren't you? A robot kind of malfunction. He was hitting the ball back to Chang, which is, you know, the exact opposite of what you want to be doing I've, I've read and watched a number of interviews with with Chang and done, done one myself that we'll hear in a moment um, and he talks about how you know he was waiting for Lendl to start hitting drop shots and to start going for the angles and you know start playing on his his obvious depletion but he kind of just just didn't do it he was busy busy imploding and it was it was so evident he you know all all semblance of a poker face just disintegrated didn't it he was he was shouting about the quality of the court and he got involved in a in a really heated altercation with the with the umpire Richard Ings during which Michael Chang actually left the court to as he says freshen up um which further angered Ivan Lendl it was <laughs> <laughs> Great, great yeah. line. Just going just, just to freshen just up. Just going to go powder my nose. You, uh, you continue your aggro <laughs> while I'm gone. Um, it was extraordinary. It's really remarkable because comebacks from two sets down normally are built on physical endurance and 
you know, when you're two sets down, you know you've got a long way physically to go. You know, I think we all talked about how strong Lendl was physically in his comeback in the 84 final against McEnroe. That was the building block that Lendl's physical strength allowed him back into the match. Well, Chang didn't have the physical strength in this match. He was cramping. He he had to use his mind to sort of tactically beat Lendl, which is an incredible feat to do as well, to be to think so clearly when your body is so tired. Um, and yet to kind of scramble the mind of the dominant world number one is 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 remarkable. Mm. And he did it with the combination that we've described of this slow ball moonballing arcing the ball back and forth towards the end of the match he started standing on the service line and to to return half volleys just threatening Lendl uh, a little bit like we saw with Gabriella Sabatini the the other day just just giving different looks and then there was the ultimate there was the underarm serve which just took on a legend really of its own but when you actually looked at the shot itself, it was a genius shot because that was, I think, the best underarm serve I, I've seen of all the ones we've, we've seen Nick Kyrgios and all the, red, all the other players hit. He hit it with vicious slice at the very last second, totally disguised, and Lendl was flummoxed. Yeah, he skids off the line. It, it skids off the line, doesn't it? Because it's got so much spin on it. And, and Lendl does actually successfully return it, but he, he's he's not able to, to to get nearly enough on the ball. And he he turns his back on Lendl. And, and it's interesting, he doesn't... He, 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 it, sorry, Lendl turns his back on Chang. And he doesn't... It's such a mature reaction, actually, as much as it's a frustrated one, because he's not pissed off with Chang for hitting the underarm serve. He's pissed off with himself. He turns his back on Chang and he's tapping at his head as he walks back, you know, as if to say, if I were thinking more clearly, I don't know whether he's thinking, if I were thinking more clearly, I would have dealt with that better, or perhaps he's thinking, I should have seen this coming. I, d- I don't know. I mean, it seemed so unforeseen for for everybody watching, um, and yet it was such a perfect tactic. And it's it's funny, I find the the double fault on match point that was completely elicited by Chang's service uh, return of serve position which is a total troll i mean he's basically <laughs> he's basically standing on the service line to receive that second before serve we knew about trolling. yeah and Len- lendl the iron man the mental colossus double faults on match point because he's completely flummoxed by what michael chang is doing i mean that for me is almost as extraordinary a moment but because the underarm serve had come before it's 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 over overshadowed but i feel like yeah that moment could have gone down in legend in its own right. Let's find out about what Michael Chang was thinking when he made that play. Catherine asked him about the underarm serve and how he felt about becoming the poster boy for it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there have probably been more underarm serves hit in uh, 2019 than there probably in any previous year. At least certainly that was, was, that's been documented. You know, Nick probably hitting maybe 90% of those. But, you know, under the circumstances for me, you know, obviously it's completely different. It wasn't so much tactical as it was to, you know, try to change something because I my first serve was going in, you know, like a weak second serve. And I was losing points because I couldn't really go up and hit a proper serve. And I only did it once. And that, that ended up being almost a turning point in the match because it made the match not only a physical one but a mental one as well. And, um, you know, obviously the situation is a little bit different nowadays because some of these guys are returning so far back 
So, you know, guys are using it from a tactical standpoint, not a, not as a, as a means to an end to try to win a point because you're physically unable to, to perform the way that you normally are. So, um, I was down 1530. Uh, I was up four, three, I was up a break and I was just kind of like, you know, I gotta, I gotta do something different here because otherwise I'm going to lose my serve again. And if I lose my serve again, you know, this match could very well be over. People say, well, did you practice that? And I said, no, I don't practice that serve. So, well, did you, did you think about it much? I said, yeah, I probably thought about it for maybe two seconds before I hit it. <laughs> and, you know, thankfully I, I was able to, to win that point and to go from 15.30 to 15.40 or to go to 30 all, I mean, it's a big difference. And, you know, obviously winning that game was huge in giving me a, a 5-3 lead in the fifth and then obviously breaking, breaking Yvonne to win 6-3. But, yeah, obviously very different circumstances back then in 89 versus all the players that have hit it, you know, last year. He can occasionally be a bit of a, a spiky character, Yvonne Lendl. Did you ever have any negativity from him after that match? I have never had any negativity from Yvonne, really, ever. I, I've had constructive criticism from him. And that actually came uh, my rookie year in 1988. But constructive criticism being that I I had played him in an exhibition in Des Moines, Iowa. He was supposed to play Boris Becker, and Boris pulled out at the last minute. So I got a phone call from the promoter asking if I wanted to go out to play Yvonne. And I was like, heck yeah, sure. Opportunity to play the number one player in the world. I'm 16 years old, absolutely. (laughs) So... I went out there. I, I played him. I absolutely drubbed. I think I lost maybe two and three. And, you know, we were in the car ride back to the hotel, and, and he was very frank with me. He was like, well, do you want to know why you lost today? And I'm like, uh, sure, tell me why. He's like, well, you don't have much of a serve. You know, you don't have a whole lot of weapons. You're quick around the court, which is, which is great. But I'm going to be honest with you. If you're going to be out here playing on tour, you really got to work on, on these aspects of your game. I didn't take it in a negative sense. I took it like, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. I better, I better listen up. There's a reason why he's number one in the world. So I went back and I started working on my serve. I started working on my second serve. I started working on developing more weapons. And then strangely enough, I ended up playing him in 89 in Atlanta and I ended up playing him again at the French Open and, and it ends up to be probably the most famous match that I will always be remembered for. Yeah. To a certain degree, I, I, I owe Yvonne a little bit of thanks for being very open and constructive with me because I probably wouldn't have uh, worked on some of those things as much had, had he not pointed those things out. But, I mean, post-French Open 89, I mean, Yvonne has always been very professional, you know, the utmost gentleman and talking with me, practicing with me. I know, you know, he has that reputation for if you hit a short ball mistakenly in practice, it's basically like... He has the right to go and to drill you. <laughs> um, many guys will attest to that. He never did that with me, even though I knew he was known for that. If I happened to do that, I'd, certainly I would duck or move away. But he never did that to me. And you know, even the first time that I saw him after our match in '89, I saw him at Orangi, uh, one of the days leading up to Wimbledon starting. And he was walking off the off of the court through that little area between the uh, the first court and then the entrance. And I was walking this way, and I was like, oh, you, you know, there's Yvonne. And I was kind of looking to my left, looking to my right, and I'm like, there's no way I can really go, so I, 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 got, I guess i got to face him. And he saw me. He, he just beelined straight toward me. And he goes, hey, Michael, you know, he put out his hand, and he goes, I just want to congratulate you on an incredible French Open. That's well done, man. And, I mean, to me, that just shows you a different side of Yvonne that people normally 
don't see. You know, normally they see the very stoic, very serious, very methodical champion on the court, but they don't see what he's like off the court. And people that know him know that he's very, very different. Always joking around and, you know, always talking a lot. Very, very different than, than what he is on the court. And I've always had a great relationship with Yvonne, you know, even to this day. You know, every time I see him, I, I, I will spend some, you know, a few minutes talking to him. We'll talk about family. We'll talk about tennis. We'll talk about golf. But strangely enough, I've had a question being that, oh, have you guys ever talked about the French Open in 89? And I said, no. I've never talked to Yvonne about the French Open in 89, and I will probably never ask him any questions about it. <laughs> That's amazing stories. It's brilliant. What, it, was it after... Was it after that fourth round match that you started to believe that you could win the tournament? I actually didn't really think that far ahead. It was a long ways to go, and I knew every match was was tough. Playing two two great clay quarters in Agenor and Chesnikov. Chesnikov had beaten uh, Mott Vlander in the quarters, and then obviously Stefan was playing great tennis on the clay as well. So, you know, I didn't really look too far ahead. But it was, uh, it was not an easy situation to play the final rounds because, you know, I did get a fair amount of bad press, actually, after my match with Lendl because I was, people had asked me a lot of questions and, and I spoke a lot about my Christian faith. So I was jeered a lot in the, in the remaining matches that I played, uh, which was not easy for me, especially when you've never experienced that before. You know, being 17 years old, I mean, you never walk out to a tennis match and people are booing you. So that was really difficult to to handle, but I certainly didn't think, oh, I got this tournament because there were there were so many great players that were still left. And you also had the the harrowing backdrop of what was happening in in China, the the Tiananmen Square protests, which I think did that all happen the day before that that Lendl match? Yeah, it did. It happened the middle Sunday, if I remember correctly. It happened the middle Sunday of the French Open. I think I played Yvonne the following day. How difficult was that? How present was it in your mind? Uh, it was very present because, you know, the events that, that were leading up to the crackdown were already unfolding. So all of the demonstrations, all of the thousands of uh, students that were there in Tiananmen had already been building up till that, that day that they had the crackdown. So uh, it was hard not to watch, you know, a lot of the, the events unfold, you know, on TV. And, uh you know, and certainly in, in, in many aspects, you you draw inspiration from that. Uh, I think being obviously Chinese, you see the courage of the student that stands in front of the three tanks, not wavering from his position. I mean, you think about a tennis match and you're thinking about, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm cramping in this situation and, and I'm dealing with pain, I'm de- dealing with adversity. Well, compared to what those students are going through, this is nothing. It was a very <clears throat> sad time for, for Chinese people around the world and and I've often thought that it was God, you know, purposing for me to win the French Open because it brought a, a smile upon Chinese people's faces during a time when there wasn't a whole lot to smile about if you were Chinese. Isn't it fascinating to hear the version of events from the man himself, the things that he was thinking when he hit that underarm serve, the, the emotions that a 17-year-old lad is going through on the eve of a Grand Slam final? And I knew nothing, Catherine, of the booing that that he he said he he had to put up with for for talking about his religious beliefs in a press conference. I, I knew nothing about that. Yeah, as I understand it, that that booing that he's referring to, it wasn't during the the Len, the Lendl match. It was actually subsequent to the Lendl match. He obviously garnered so much attention and press attention, and he was asked to talk about it. And it was at that stage that 
um, he made the the the, re- the really sort of widely distributed comments about about his faith and the fact that that his his belief in 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 God and his belief that Jesus was there with him on the court were were what prevented him from throwing in the towel during that match because he at one point he actually starts making the journey towards towards the net towards the umpire to shake hands and he says something comes over him you know a moment of 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 faith of of whatever you want to call it um and and yeah he thinks about you know if i throw the towel in this time then i will inevitably do it another time I, I, it will be easier for me to do it the next time and he vows to continue and he says from that moment on he kind of it's not that he stopped cramping but he stopped feeling it to the same extent um but yeah after that match he you know he he he's never been cowed at all about talking about his faith you know no matter what the what the reaction be it from be it from fans or fellow players there's quite a quite a well documented um segment in Andre Agassi's autobiography um talking about uh Michael Chang pretty pretty it's pretty un pleasant really not that you know he hasn't got a point in why he feels aggrieved by it but it it, it, well I'll read it out to you and you you can make your own mind up he says he he credits God for for his win referring to a a victory that he scored over Agassi which offends me that God should take sides in a tennis match that God should side against me that God should be in Chang's box feels ludicrous and insulting. I beat Chang and I savour every blasphemous stroke. And he said that when he watched um, Agassi eventually go on to, uh, when he watched Chang uh, eventually go on to win that 89 French Open, he says, I feel sickened. How could Chang of all people have won a slam before me? Um, so yeah, he he had to face he had to face a, an an awful lot, um, and you know at seventeen years of age, and and he wasn't as I say he wasn't cowed by it at all. He he stuck to what he believed, and he he believed he had a responsibility to to talk about it. He talked to he described himself as uh, an evangelical tennis player you know he he felt like that was his his purpose to to spread the word through through his tennis and the profile he gained through tennis it's quite a moment as well that he is open enough to to address the Tiananmen Square massacre that took place as well and he was back then too he didn't he didn't pretend that wasn't happening he didn't try and block it out he he had to accept it because it was in is that important and it was that important to him um and just really interesting to to listen to his take and here he is now in his 40s and i don't know i i just i watch him on the court and i and i i almost feel like it's a little unfair for these people of this age to be trying to trying to play on these stages and yet he also it was the best moment of his career at the same time fascinating to witness and and whatever the reason was that he decided not to give up in the Lendl match it's a shame that that has been kind of spun negatively by Agassi there because actually what a testament to not giving up if he had given up he'd have walked out on the what turned out to be the career defining match of his career um yeah I just 
I just find it a bit of a shame, really, to mm. to hear that. Yeah, uh, also interesting that not only did he win a Grand Slam before Andre Agassi, he won one before Pete Sampras and Jim Courier. And actually, it was interesting that at the start of the NBC broadcast for the final, they were kind of lamenting this big drought of American men's tennis where no one had won a slam since uh, McEnroe in 84, so coming up to five years. And now, obviously, we're in a drought of 17 years of no American man winning a slam. It's interesting how that um, that has changed. But yeah, this did seem to be the start of... Obviously, Chang's and then Sampras, Courier, and Agassi all won slams. What they're within two or three years of this, um, mm. so it seemed to be a warning sign that the young Americans were coming. Well, yeah, the, I mean, the, the opening to um, to an LA Times piece um, about uh, about Chang's win says there hasn't been a real American tennis hero since 1985. The last time an American man ranked number one on the computer, or maybe even 1984, the last time an American male took a Grand Slam title, and the last time America made it to the finals in the prestigious International Davis Cup competition. No one has quite fit the bill, not Ivan Lendl, who only lives in America, not John McEnroe, who used to be the best, and not Andre Agassi, who looked like he could be the best, dot, 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 last year. Uh, which I found wow. an incredibly um, poignant assessment of where uh, where American tennis was at, and it's interesting. Jim Curry is actually probably of that group of uh, of of American men that carried the flag for so long. He was probably the most generous towards towards Michael Chang, and he he credits Chang and that win with with giving the rest of them belief that it could be done. He said, we recognised very quickly after Michael won that French Open that it was not an insurmountable task. Something something that seemed so far away was right in front of you at that point. Mm. Yeah, because they would have been training together, mm. coming up together and duking it out in the juniors, etc. Um, the the final that Chang played against Stefan Edberg, he, he beat Ronald Aginor and Andrei Chesnikov, in order to get to the final, faced Edberg, who was the quintessential serve and volleyer, chip charger. Beautiful grass court game that also translated really well to hard courts. He would go on to win the US Open twice. He'd won two Australian Opens, both on grass. He would win Wimbledon twice. And here he was in the final, and he was the favourite. He was the favourite to beat this 17-year-old kid who was surely on his last legs. And... Chang gets off to a great start, plays absolutely electrifying tennis in the first set. Edberg wins the next two, really seems to step on the accelerator with the power of his ground strokes, it seemed to me. And he's all over the net, isn't he? I mean, he is the most athletic, perfectly um, proportioned athlete who just seems balanced at all times. And it doesn't feel, when he's playing well, it doesn't feel like there's any way past him or over him at the net. And to think that he went two sets to one up against Chang and didn't win. It was it was a brilliant match, for, first and foremost. Great contrast in styles. But again, I mean, Lendl feels like the story, the win over Lendl because of so many reasons, but two sets to one down and he does it again. And from an Ebbo perspective, you think, talk about ones that got away or what-if moments. Edberg won the other three slams 
and he was he had he was up a break in both the fourth and fifth sets against Chang in this French Open final. Altogether, he had twenty five break points in the match and converted six. And there's a there's a there's a couple of games in the fourth set where he gets multiple break points in a row. You know, it's not just getting one at a time. He's got two or three. It's a little bit choky, has to be said, um, especially especially the forehand, which we commented on a lot when we were watching the match together. And you were saying, David, that you know, in those pressure moments, Edberg's technique on that forehand really did cost him throughout his career. Mm. That's that's a, that's a that's a flattering spin on what David said about the Edberg <laughs> forehand. What did I say? I said he well, had a good. He was having a good day. Well, I said. well Matt we, and we I were, were complimenting <laughs> it because it it's a stuff of not not so great legends. The Edberg forehand, right? And that is by extension a huge compliment of the rest of the rest of his game. He was as great as he was with a, a poor shot in his arsenal. Um, but so I was expecting to be decidedly unimpressed by the Edberg forehand watching this final, and it, by and large, was not rubbish. Yeah, it was. It was. He had a good yeah, day. Yeah, and and Dave, <laughs> Dave, I said, oh, I'm quite impressed with his forehand here. Matt sort of said the same. You know, the it, it looks a funky stroke, but it was proving quite effective. And David just rolled his eyes and said with all due respect he's probably having his best day ever on the forehand here <laughs> I, I stand by it he was having a good day Let's, uh, I didn't I didn't actually ask him about that uh, but I did ask him about the uh, the occasion more generally and what his memories are of that 1989 French Open final this is one of the occasions, one of the matches that I get reminded about still today, uh, which is quite amazing because um, I do remember the match. Of course, if there is another match, you would have replayed again or maybe one or two points because um, looking back, uh, I mean, I think it, it stunned a lot of people. Michael getting to the final, you know, beating uh, Ivan Lendl, hitting underarm serves. So, so there was uh, quite something at the time. And I I remember going into the final, I really felt uh, this this is a great opportunity. And, um, you know, things maybe didn't start off so well, losing the first set. But then I gained momentum, two sets to one up, uh, probably had nine or ten break points in the fourth set. Uh, uh, and, you know, I can still remember a point where I sort of just waiting to hit my backhand for a winner, thinking hitting cross court or down the line. I just missed the line by a couple of centimeters. That would have given me the break and probably would have given me the match as well. And um, so it was very, very close. Um, but at the same time, very, very frustrating to lose that match in five. And honestly, I believe that I would get another chance to win the French Open, but that never happened. So... Thinking back, yeah, it was tough to lose that final because that would have been great to have that under your belt. But at the same time, I guess Michael is very happy today. <laughs> he certainly <laughs> is. Do you, do you think you, you lost your nerve a little bit? Um, not necessarily. It's, um, you know, it's probably one or two points that really made a difference in that match, as I can recall. And, um, you know, I really blew my chances in the four set. It's not like I had one or two break points. I probably had, like I said, nine or ten. And, and to get up a break in the four serve and when you have the momentum, you know, your chances of winning uh, is going to be 
a lot higher. But at the same time, when when I lost that fourth set, and uh, you know, then you're in the fifth set, and uh, and then it's a different match, and uh, you know, a lot of things can happen going into fifth set. And obviously, he got the best start in the fifth set. He got the momentum, and uh, he never looked back. So this is uh, this is what tennis is. It can always turn on a dime you know within a minute or two a match can change and that's uh, what's so fantastic about tennis as a game it's never never really finished until the last point is played that night when you you decompress you go to bed you you leave paris eventually was that your toughest defeat uh, thinking back is one of the toughest but at the same time i didn't feel as bad you know, after that final uh, at the, in Paris, you know, obviously I was very disappointed. It was not the end of the world. I really thought I'd get another opportunity. Um, but, you know, life goes on as a tennis player. But uh, and then we went on to play Wimbledon and, and then I lost another final uh, two in a row. I lost to Boris in 89 in the Wimbledon final. I actually felt worse after that match in 1989 than I did uh, when I lost to Michael at the French Open. So that was one of the toughest moments I feel um, when I lost that final against Boris because, you know, losing two Grand Slam finals in a row within two months, not a great feeling uh, because it does make such a big difference when you come out as a winner. Um, mm. That's what people will remember. That's what will s- what you can read on the board and when you look at previous winners. Um, so it's, it's pretty tough as tennis. The winner takes it all and that's what people remember. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, tennis podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. 
So, Stefan Edberg here on the Tennis Podcast, and I think that's probably as close as you will get to him admitting to something being his toughest defeat of his career. I mean, that that clearly stung, probably more in hindsight than anything else, because, as he says there, he thought he was going to get another chance, and he, he didn't. A bit like McEnroe we were talking about a couple of days ago. Except McEnroe knew he wouldn't get another chance. Or certainly thought yeah. so and was proven right. But yeah, Edberg, after that, just reached his best result after 89 at the French was quarterfinals um, in 91 and, and 93. So he never really even came came close again. Whereas Chang, Chang reached uh, the final in 95, losing to, to Muster. So although he didn't win an, an, another slam, he did have success. I mean... Yeah, there is something completely infectious about watching Sir Volleyers have success on clay, isn't it? I would, I would love it if, if he did have a, a French Open. I'd love it if McEnroe had a French Open. But and there was Becca. Becca had a semi-final. Sampras had a semi-final, yeah. but they just couldn't quite do it. Yeah, it's. I guess that's what makes it special, right? That's that's what makes clay courts tennis's classroom. As uh, as Mary Carillo put it, um, that it is it's so prized and takes so much resilience and and intelligence. I think to win that title. I mean, that's something that I've got a couple of quotes here from from fellow players about Chang. We've got uh, John McEnroe talking about how strong he is mentally, and and this was before he won that title. This was people talking about him as. As as a as a potential champion in the sort of medium to long term future, you know, John McEnroe says, "Listen, this guy is mentally unbelievable for his age." Chang is very very strong mentally, um, and Arthur Ashe said of Michael Chang, "He is easily the smartest young player I have ever seen." Is an intuitive sense that I can only compare to a chess prodigy. At age nine, you see him do things on the court that you would expect to see from someone who's been on the tour for years. And it was such a clever performance from Chang against Edberg. You know, the way he was taking, he was practically half-volleying returns to try and deny Edberg the time to get up to the net. I mean, still, Edberg seemed to be up towering over the net in, in the blink of an eye. But it was it was such a great uh, Great performance from Michael Chang. I was so struck, especially the first hour of that final that Chang played, by how modern and ahead of his ahead of his time his tennis looked. Because he was taking the ball early and, as you said, taking the net away from Edberg. He was the aggressive player, and that is so difficult to do. What is he? Five foot nine. Chang, he's got these serves kicking up above his head, but he's taking them early, playing aggressively. And that was just, that really took me back because, you know, what I've read about Chang is that he's a defensive player, a counterpuncher. And I think he probably was in his career, but he had the, he had the nous to know that he needed to take it to Edberg on that court and play his, and not allow Edberg to play his game. Edberg eventually got into the match and did start dominating the net and doing everything that made him so great. But then Chang managed to turn the tables on him again in the fifth set. It's um, it's a real, it, it's one of those matches where it really pays to watch the whole thing because yeah. you see the ebbs and flow of it and, and the sort of 
changes in tactics that both players had to make. It's, it was really fun. And often the, the the slightly lazy analysis I find of of Chang as a tennis player is that oh you know pound for pound he was the greatest ever or you know had he just been a few inches taller he would have been a multi multi Grand Slam champion and I don't I think that misses the point about Chang completely which is that he used his height and his stature as his greatest weapon. His speed. Well, he was he was the fastest around the court. Yeah, his speed he around the known... court. His, his ability to get low and take the ball early. He used it to it to uh, he he made it a strength, which is incredible. What you saw what you saw in that run perfectly encapsulated his career when he was at his best. Though is that you didn't know what was coming from shot to shot. Mm. He it wasn't just. I think it would be reductive to say that he just played aggressive tennis. He would play aggressive tennis when it suited him he would pick his moment to just rally 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 and then pull the trigger and he was on you Mm. and you did not know when it was coming and particularly you didn't know it was coming when the guy is 17 and you've never heard of him or you've played him maybe once or seen the odd match here and there and there he is against two of the most established players in the world and he won the mental battle against both of them and he won the tennis battle, he took the best that they'd got. He was two sets to love down against Lendl, two sets to one down against Edberg, didn't go away. And eventually he ended up controlling the pace of of the rallies, the way they were going. And and I, th- I find that electrifying when you see a guy who is five foot nine inches tall and who is capable of counter-punching and doesn't just bring it on every shot. He just decides right bang and uh it was just great to see and i think we we will we may well cover another of his matches in the future from the u.s open or somewhere like that and because he did have some great runs he was just a great feature of that era of tennis but this was the moment 1989 this is the moment that we will all remember him for in the long run because he was younger than anybody who's ever won a grand slam title on the men's side which is a record that could well stand for for quite some time. I know quite some time. I know a lot of people think tennis is is cyclical, and the times of, of teeny bopper champions, as uh, a Daily Express headline by Malcolm Foley uh, called uh, Michael Chang at the time. That those times might come around again, but they feel it feels like the direction of travel is moving away from that if champions are getting older as the game becomes more physical it becomes more and more difficult for a for a teenager to win seven best of five set matches it's always interesting on when a player peaks in their career because i think the assumption is that when someone wins a slam so early on in their career is that they will probably do it again because they've got their whole career ahead of them and they kind of know how to do it but something Osaka's talked about, that actually, once you know what it takes to win a slam, doesn't necessarily make it easier because you, you know how hard it is. And it takes, a, it takes a particular mindset and mental strength to, to kind of build yourself up to do it all over again and to be a repeat winner. And I think that's probably why there are a lot of one-time slam winners who won quite young, because it can actually work against you in a way because it because you know how hard it is. And um, obviously Chang reached a couple more slam finals but was never quite to get over the line. And obviously he's, mm. thinking, he's thinking so clearly in terms of 
his on-court strategy in these matches, but maybe he's not taking in the whole moment of how big it is. And then obviously that, with experience, he comes to realise and then it's harder to get over the line later on. Um, I always find that interesting in terms of kind of the opposite is someone like Wawrinka who won his first slam late and managed to get some more because he hasn't he hasn't got that whole career ahead of him. I just think it's a different perspective when you win your first slam late in your career to, compared to early on. I asked uh, Stefan Edberg as well whether he'd expected then Chang to go on and win more Grand Slams and he said, I, I would have done, yeah. Um, mm. he, he perhaps lacked a little bit at the uh, uh, at the most vital moments but but yeah i'd have probably thought he he would have done um and he he tr- he maximized his career he tried everything he could he he played with a, a lengthened racket for a while to try and get more on his serve which was a little bit controversial at times he definitely as as he was explaining with that chat around about things Lendl had said to him he tried to inject more into his game there was no stone left unturned really in the career I don't think of of Michael Chang and and he's left us with one of the great memories that chat with Lendl was like the uh was like the original not one negative face from the uh, from the Labour Cup <laughs> getting told what to do by your um by your by kind of the great in the game but actually he uh he did manage to execute he, it. he did it yeah yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, so there we are, a fourth uh, edition of Roland Garros Relived here on the Tennis Podcast. We've got many more of them coming your way every day of when the French Open should have been going on this fortnight. If you're enjoying them, do let your friends know about these shows. There's now four in the archive. We've had Yannick Noah, his interview. We'll have his full interview in a few weeks' time. Really is a, a fantastic interview, I think, that that from uh, Yannick Noah. We've got um, the... We've We've got John McEnroe against um, uh, Ivan Lendl in the archive, The Haunting of John McEnroe, that match that will never leave him uh, from 1984. And yesterday we had the rivalry, Chris Evert against Martina Navratilova. Now, tomorrow we're going to be back again with one of the best finals I've ever seen at the French Open between Monica Selesh and Steffi Graf from 1992. Uh, can't wait to bring that to you. Can't wait to relive it, quite honestly. I haven't watched it in its entirety since the day I saw it 28 years ago. Well, that's what we're going to do over the next 24 hours. Links to it will be in the show notes to this uh, show. If you want to scroll down on your phone, you'll be able to see uh, where you can watch that match with us. And we'll be back with another tennis podcast tomorrow. If you're enjoying them, do leave us uh, an iTunes review. But do tell your friends, and we'll speak to you tomorrow. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 